All right, if you aren't there yet, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've had a great morning already, haven't we? It's been a great day, and uh, hopefully it's only going to get better here as we get into God's Word together this morning. As you turn, let me uh, quickly introduce myself. My name is Chris Carr. It's been one of my great privileges to be one of your pastors here at Bethel for almost eight and a half years now. It doesn't seem uh, real that it's been that long, um, but it's been a real joy and continues to be for me to uh, serve this church. I just want to let you know today I love you. And uh, you don't hear from me a whole lot, but I love you, and it is my greatest joy to be able to open up God's Word uh, with you here this morning. Filling in here for Pastor Steve, who has been away uh, speaking at a Bible college and seminary this week. He's actually preaching uh, at my brother's church in Ohio uh, this morning and this evening, and will be back with us to continue in 1 Corinthians next week. And I have to tell you that I am just absolutely excited to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning And the reason for that is is that I really, really believe that every time we open up this book, there is a chance, actually a really good chance, that God is going to show up and is going to do something magnificent in our lives. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that. You might be like me. I hope that you are and that I need to hear from him today. I need to know what he has to say. I need to learn. I need to grow in him. You know, I hope that you didn't come to hear me today. In fact, I know most of you didn't because you had no idea I was preaching, okay? (laughs) You know, I don't really have anything to share with you. And so all I want to do here this morning is I just want to open up God's Word, get out of the way, and let the Spirit do His work amongst us today. And so let's begin by reading the passage, and then we'll pray and see what the Spirit has to do this morning. Chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts, except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart these, wor- these in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And Holy Spirit, we're going to study about you this morning. We're going to learn about you this morning. And so we want you to come realizing that we need your help to be able to understand all that God has done for us. And he has done so much. And we are thankful for it. But we want to ask for your Holy Spirit's presence and his work amongst us, and he will do something great. We need to hear from you, and so we want to ask that he will work here today through your word and in your people for your glory. Amen. Well, in recent weeks, we have seen here in 1 Corinthians that Paul has been leveling his guns, so to speak, against the Corinthians' apparent infatuation and pursuit of worldly wisdom. Now, while they possessed the true wisdom of a crucified Savior, they were way too enamored uh, with the wisdom and the teaching of the philosophers and the intellectuals of their day. 
Last week we saw that Paul went as far as to say that when he came and preached to the Corinthians, he didn't speak with words of wisdom, but rather he spoke with weakness, with fear, and with trembling. It's hard to imagine that in Paul, right? But that's what he says. His knees were knocking. A little bit like mine right now. But given all of this, and apparently sensing that they, and perhaps us, might perceive that there isn't wisdom in what he preaches, he makes a significant transition in verse 6. And we can see this if you have the ESV from the very first word of verse 6, which is what? If you have an ESV, what's that word there? It is, it's yet. Say it a little bit yet louder. It is yet, okay? Yet, which signifies there's a transition coming here in the passage and in the book as a whole. It'll help if we actually go back to verses 4 and 5. Let's just read those. It says this, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So Paul does claim to speak with wisdom, but the Greek word translated impart here tells us that the wisdom that he is talking about refers to the content of the speech, not the form. It wasn't how he said it, but what he was saying. The wisdom he preaches is not in how he preaches, but rather in what he preaches. And before we dig deeper into our text here, I think we, want, we need to step back a little bit, and we need to see the forest. You know, sometimes you can fail to see the forest for all the trees, and there's a lot of trees in 1 Corinthians, so we need to step back and review what's going on in this church. What's the context here? We need to remember that the Corinthian believers are pursuing wisdom that really isn't wisdom at all, while failing to live by and live out the wisdom of God. And it's causing all kinds of problems in the church. So Paul is writing them really very forcefully to remind, and I believe to warn them, of their error. And the truth that we need to see here today at Bethel, November 2nd, 2008, is this is that it's very easy to be carried away by the wisdom of the world. Do you realize that? The wisdom of the world sounds really good. It looks really good. It's the way the talking heads say to go. It's the popular way to go. And we want to normally go with the flow. The problem is, is we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians, that the wisdom of the world is absolutely devastating to those who follow it. It's passing away. It's temporary. And it will lead us down a path that will lead to devastation. Do you hear this? Do you realize that every second that you live, there is a constant competition for your attention and for your affections, for your heart, for your emotions, for your desires? The world is after it. It wants you and it will grab you if you don't focus on God's wisdom. If we're not careful, we will be pulled away from God's wisdom by the wisdom of the world and therefore into all the same kind of problems that plague the church at Corinth. So let's look intently into God's word today and see how we can center our lives around God's wisdom and avoid the pitfalls that so entangled the Corinthian church. Now, if we look closely at our text this morning, we'll notice that Paul divides his hearers then and today into two categories. He basically says that there are two types of people, just like there are two types of people. There are two types of wisdom. The two types of people are those who can understand God's wisdom and those who cannot. Just like the two types of wisdom are God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. So let's look at these two and try and figure out who they are. In verses 6 through 8, Paul twice mentions the rulers of this age and that they are the ones who don't get God's wisdom. 
Now the rulers that Paul is referring to here primarily and first and foremost are Pilate and Herod and the Jewish religious leaders who had Jesus crucified. But it also applies to the rulers and intellectual leaders of all ages as well as everyone who follows their wisdom. This includes everyone who fails to recognize the wisdom of a crucified Savior. In fact, in verse 8, Paul tells us that if the rulers had understood God's wisdom, they never would have crucified Jesus. And you notice the title that he gives to him there? You see the title? Many people say that this is the greatest title that Paul ever gave to Jesus. The Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. On this point, John Piper says this. He says that you can tell whether a person's mind is dominated by the wisdom of the world or by the wisdom of God by whether he acknowledges the crucified Christ to be not a criminal but the Lord of glory. Worldly wisdom sees the cross and it thinks criminal. God's wisdom sees the cross and thinks he's Lord. He's my Lord. How about you here this morning? When you consider the cross and all that it represents, do you bow your knee or do you turn your nose? Do you realize that is the most important point, statement, question that has ever been raised? When you consider the cross and the Lord that hung on there, what do you do? What do you do with Jesus? And Paul says, real wisdom bows the knee, sees that Jesus is Lord, and calls him so. And you know what? There's actually kind of a great deal of irony here. In their wisdom... These rulers actually put to death the one who could truly give them the wisdom that they so desired, sought after, and very much needed. What kind of wisdom is that? And do you realize actually what's going on here? God is actually uh, into a little bit of irony. He is actually saying these rulers who crucified what they believed to be a pretend Messiah, a messianic pretender, were actually God's tool and what he used to bring about the salvation of the world. Do you realize that? Do you get the irony? Am I the only one in here that gets this? That these rulers who in all their wisdom said, you know, this guy is a pretender. We need to get rid of him. We're actually playing right into the hands of God. And we're his tool that he used to bring about our salvation. That's what real wisdom is, is the crucified Savior. Paul says they were unwillingly used by God about what he had planned before the ages began. And says that if they had had real wisdom, they wouldn't have crucified him. But they simply didn't understand. Have you ever read through the Gospels? And as you're watching how the Pharisees and Pilate and Herod and uh, the Jew, many of the Jews, as, as how they treated Jesus, have you ever just wanted to yell and scream and say, what are you doing? Stop. Can't you see? It's so easy for us, isn't it? It's so easy for us to see who Jesus is and what he has done. And yet they, they couldn't. These are guys who knew the Old Testament. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They heard all of his teaching. And yet they couldn't understand who he was. He was the person they were looking for. And yet they couldn't see him. Why? I want you to lodge that back in, in the back of your mind for a minute. Why? We'll come to that here in just a second. Now, who is Paul's message for? And he tells us here in verse 6 that his message is for the mature. Now, there is actually a great amount of debate as to actually who these mature people are. But I believe from the context that it's clear that Paul means all believers. All who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have received the Spirit, understood that true wisdom is a crucified Savior. They are the mature. 
Some say here that Paul is teaching that there are two different types of Christians. There are mature and immature Christians. There are different categories. But you know what? Nowhere do we see in the New Testament that there is evidence of this. Rather, all of us are exhorted to grow in our maturity. We are all told, Peter says, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in our context here in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul isn't contrasting mature and immature Christians, but rather believers who accept the wisdom of the cross and unbelievers who consider it foolishness. And he is exhorting the Corinthian believers to begin to act like what they are, mature, or as he calls them there in verse 13, spiritual. They are spiritual people and they need to start acting like it. You see, the Corinthian church apparently had the same problem that many churches today have, and that is way too many Christians whose lives show little difference from the world around them. Yes, they had the wisdom of a crucified Savior. Yes, they had God's wisdom, but they were failing to live in light of it. Yes, Christ had become their righteousness and sanctification and redemption, as chapter 1, verse 30 says, but their life really did not reflect it. In their conduct, they weren't really showing that they were believers. And that's what's behind all the problems that they were facing in the church. In fact, we see at the end of the book, chapter 14, verse 20, Paul tells them this. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, the New Testament says this over and over again. Stop stop acting like an infant and be what you are. You are mature in Christ. You know Christ, so act like it. Act like it. Now, Paul goes on to say here that the wisdom that he preaches was actually decreed by God before the ages, before time began, and it is for our glory. And I want you to see this in verse 7. Notice notice what he says there at the end. We'll get back to the secret and hidden part in a little bit, but he says this, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. It's easy to pass this over, but to me, this is one of the greatest truths in all of Scripture, that before time began, God decreed those who were going to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 says this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Do you realize this morning that God didn't just decide to save you at the moment that you ask him to be your savior? That he didn't just decide to save you when Christ died on the cross. That he didn't just decide uh, to bring about Christ after the fall. That before God created the world, he decreed that you were going to come to know him. That he was going to send his son to Calvary to die for your sins. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Which means for you that your salvation is eternally secure. Because God determined that it was going to happen before he even created the world. And if you're not encouraged and excited about that, then I don't know what will encourage you this morning. We are secure in him because God has determined that we would come to know him as his Savior. Paul elaborates on this in Romans 8.18, which says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in or to us. The wisdom that Paul preaches is for our glory And it is so much greater than any struggle that we might have today. Some of you have probably had a rough week, right? I imagine if we went around, you've had a rough week. Some of you maybe have had a rough uh, month. I imagine, actually I don't imagine, I know enough people here at the church to know that some of you have had a rough life altogether. And I, I actually don't say that jokingly. It is a reality. It is a reality that some, some in our body have just had a difficult life. 
But what you need to hear today is this, is that God is working in and through you in such a way that the glory that is to be revealed in you is so much greater than even the greatest struggle that you have today. Before the ages begin, God decreed that his son will be crucified on an old Roman cross for your salvation and for your future glory. And notice how this is completely different from the future for those who don't have God's wisdom. Verse 6 says that they are doomed to pass away. I love the NIV translation, which says they are coming to, help me, what does it say? The rulers are coming to nothing, absolutely nothing. Our glory only gets greater, their glory fades away, it's gone, it's temporary. Eternal future glory is what God has decreed, it says, for those who love him. If I can just take a moment for a little bit of application here, and we've talked about the election a little bit already, but... You know, in recent days, I've become somewhat concerned with how some Christians seem to be handling these current events in our country, particularly the economic situation and the elections coming up this Tuesday. And while these are certainly important, and Pastor Steve has an insert in the bulletin that you can read after the service, okay, on your way home or when you're at home this afternoon. We believe it's important. We believe that you should vote. We believe that we should pray for our officials and pray for all of this. We have to be very careful, friends, that we don't fall prey to the world's way of thinking that as go the election and the economy, so goes life. I want to say that again. We have to be careful that we don't fall prey to the world's way of thinking that as goes the election and the economy, so goes life. Friends, our eternal standing will not be affected by what the stock market does this week. Our eternal standing will not be affected by who is elected president on Tuesday. God has decreed that it's ultimately all good for us. And he did that a long time ago before there was a stock market or a political system. You realize that whoever is elected on Tuesday is elected because it's part of God's plan to bring about our future glory. Really, that is the case. And maybe he just wants glory to come sooner for us. Okay? So... What I'm saying here is, no, no, get this. What what I'm really saying is, if whoever gets elected, you're not for, and it's not your person, it's okay. It's okay. Because it's part of God's plan to bring about what he wants in in our lives and for his kingdom and for the best of his church. Don't put your faith in earthly things because they're coming to nothing. Nothing. God's wisdom leads to the Lord of glory in whose glory we will share. And nothing can change that fact. Now, if you're following along at this point, I imagine you might have a question, or at least there is a big question there. And it's a question that Paul's about to answer. And it's really the point of this entire passage. How does someone come to have God's wisdom? What is the key to being able to understand the wisdom of God? What's the difference between those who can understand and those who can't? And if I've lost you to this point, or you haven't been too impressed with the message, that's fine. It's no big deal. You've got to get this point, okay? God's wisdom comes to man through only one conduit. There's only one way to get it, which Paul is going to explain right now in verses 9 through 13. So look at verse 9 uh, with me. Paul says this, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, this is a very interesting verse, and honestly, I don't know another word really to use here, but this verse has been absolutely butchered by pastors and believers down through the ages. 
It has been misinterpreted, misrepresented, and frankly misimplied for many, many years. Let me try and correct an error here so that we can understand what Paul is really saying. He's really quoting here two passages from Isaiah, and he's quoting them to make a very important point. And the point is not that we can't imagine what heaven is going to be like. That's normally how this verse is interpreted, that we just can't imagine. The human mind, it's just impossible for us to imagine how great heaven is going to be. While that is true, heaven is going to be greater than you and I can imagine, and we can't wait to get there. That's not what Paul is saying here. In the context, what Paul is saying, he's trying to drive home the point that it's impossible for man on his own to understand and grasp God's wisdom. It's impossible for us, by ourselves, unaided, to be able to understand God's wisdom. If you take the NIV and you combine verse 9 with the first part of verse 10, it actually will make more sense to you. It says this, However, as it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, So it's not possible for man, by his human faculties, to be able to understand what God has prepared for us. But, but... But what? God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So it is possible, it is possible to conceive of what God has done for us, but only with the, with the spirit. In other words, these eyes and ears here that Paul is talking about is the human faculties or are the human faculties that man has been given to comprehend the world we live in. These faculties work pretty well in the natural world, but they are completely ineffective in understanding the spiritual world. It's not possible. You know, a couple weeks ago, uh, Steve slammed all of us when he said that there's not very many wise among us. And I don't really completely agree with him, okay? Normally, I always agree with him. But I, on this point, you know, I know a lot of you, and we've got some really smart people in this church. Would you agree? Okay, apparently three or four of you do. (laughs) I gave you more credit than you give yourselves, apparently. You know, we do. We have some very intelligent people here. This morning we have doctors, and we have lawyers, and we have engineers, and we have professors, and we have teachers, and we have businessmen and businesswomen. We've got lots of smart people in here, but you know what? Our brains, our intelligence just won't do it. None of us are smart enough to understand and conceive of God on our own. And if you understand what's going on here now, Paul has all his guns out. He's got his full arsenal aimed at the Corinthians' view of wisdom. They were under the impression that true wisdom came through the human mind, through the human spirit. That they could know God and real wisdom through their own abilities. You know, they're just like us, wanting to believe that they can do it. Apparently they had a little bit of this American way. You can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And if you work hard enough and you think hard enough, you can understand and you can figure out the spiritual. And Paul forcefully slams the door shut here, just like he does in Ephesians 2, where he says, we can't know God because we are dead in our trespasses and sins before the Spirit comes in and regenerates us and makes us new. And friends, what can a dead person do? They can do nothing. If you don't believe me, we'll go to Burns Funeral Home here after the service, okay, and and, and view a dead person, and we'll ask them if they can understand what we're talking about. They can't. The same thing is true. We are born spiritually dead, and we need the Spirit to come in and enable us to be able to understand the things of God. And without Him, we cannot understand anything. This was hinted at back in verse 7, which says that God's wisdom was hidden in secret. This Greek word for secret here is mysterion. 
which sounds a lot like our word. Of course, we just had Halloween this weekend, right? Sounds a lot like our word. Mysterion sounds like mysterious. Guess what it means? That's what it means, mysterious. God's wisdom is mysterious. It's a mystery. But when we see this concept of mystery in the New Testament, it doesn't mean that something that's a puzzle that we have to figure out. It's not a whodunit like a murder mystery. That's not what God's wisdom is. What it means is this. It's something that God has kept hidden in the past from all human minds, but now is making known to his people through Jesus Christ. It is a secret that only God knows, and he now, at some time, makes it known to his people through Jesus Christ. It's a secret that he had hidden from before the ages began, but now he is making known to you and me through his spirit. How many of you like secrets? You like Anybody in here like secrets? I don't like secrets at all. Not at all. The only time I might like them a little bit is when I'm in on the secret, okay? But uh, if I'm outside the secret, I hate them. And when I do know a secret, I'm really terrible at keeping a secret. Because when I have something that is really great and really fun to know and is a surprise, I want to spring the surprise as soon as I can. The perfect example, I'm going to share this with you today. My wife is not here, and... Um, so I can share it. She normally has shared this story and gets a lot of joy out of it. It's quite embarrassing for me, but I'm going to tell my side of the story here this morning. All right. It goes back to Valentine's Day, 1996, 12 and a half years ago. And it was actually the day that we were engaged to be married. But it wasn't supposed to be the day that we were engaged to be married. It was actually the day that I went and I bought the, uh, uh, the engagement ring. But the problem was that as soon as I bought the engagement ring and put it in my pocket, I now had a surprise and a secret. And I actually had planned for a couple days after Valentine's Day to do this big romantic whatever stuff. And um, had this big surprise plan. But we spent Valentine's Day together and the ring began to burn a hole in my pocket. And we were sitting together on, uh, on a couch. And before I know it, I was down on my hands and knees and I asked her to marry me. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what she said. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Actually, she did, surprisingly, but it was the lamest uh, proposal ever. And I have never lived it down and am trying to figure out how to re redo that. But the point is this, is I had a big secret and I wanted to get it out. And you know what? God is, in, in so many ways, unlike me. But I do believe, perhaps in this one little way, he is just a little bit like me in that he has had this huge life-changing, world-altering secret, and he wants to share it. He wants to share it with us. And he has shared it with us. And the point of the passage now is, how has he done this? How has he chosen to reveal his secret? And verses 10 through 13 tell us that he has revealed his secret to us, one and only one way, and that is through his spirit. And there are a lot of things that we could talk about in verses 10 through 13. We don't have time to do that. But I want to make two points to you that you need to get before you leave. And that is, first of all, the Holy Spirit is able to reveal God's wisdom to us because he is God himself. The Holy Spirit is God himself. And he uses an analogy in verse 11 to bring this out. A very simple analogy. He says, basically, just as my spirit is the only one who knows what I am thinking. Now, you might... Think you know what I'm thinking right now, but you really don't know what I am thinking right now. You might be able to guess, okay, but you might know it and you might not. 
For example, I've got Kevin right here. Okay, Kevin, uh, I have no idea what Kevin is thinking. He might be thinking, I hope he's thinking, wow, this is really good truth from the Scripture. Life-changing. But he might be thinking that he's really glad that he got an extra hour of sleep last night because he'd be in trouble now if he didn't. He might be thinking that I can't wait till this gets over because I'm going to go home and watch the Bears game this afternoon. I have no idea what he is thinking. His wife is shaking her head. She, she might know what he's thinking. Now, you will note that I didn't ask his wife, Trish, what she is thinking because you, we know that men have no idea what women are thinking, right? <laughs> Absolutely no idea. I might be able to guess what Kevin is thinking, but I wouldn't even go that way. But here's the point. And really, this is the point that Paul is trying to make. It is even more true with God. No one knows what God is thinking except for his spirit. And how can the spirit know everything that God is thinking? Because the spirit is God himself. Verse 10, Paul tells us that the spirit searches the depths of God. And here he is telling us that the spirit knows everything. All of the unfathomable riches and knowledge of God. Everything that God knows, the Spirit knows. And how much does God, the Father, know? He knows everything. So how much does the Spirit of God know? Everything. So how much is He able to tell us? Well, He could tell us everything. We wouldn't be able to understand it. But He is able to reveal to us all the riches of God. And I have to just take a moment here because these verses, anytime you see the Trinity uh, in Scripture, it's not the main point here, but anytime you see the Trinity, you've got to pull it out. And in these verses here, we see the Trinity all over the place. In verse 7, we see that the Father planned our salvation before the creation of the world. In verse 8, we see the Son accomplish our salvation. They crucified the Lord of glory. And now here in verse 10, we see the Holy Spirit takes our salvation and he applies it to us. He makes it real. He gives us the ability to understand. Do you see the Trinity in this passage? Do you see how the three hearts of the Godhead have been working before the creation of the world to bring about our salvation today? That's why we're here, because... The Godhead is working together. And by the way, that makes it pretty secure, don't you think? If all three parts of the Godhead are in on this thing, we're probably in pretty good hands. And we need to see that here this morning. The second truth we want to point out is that we are able to understand God's wisdom because he has given the Holy Spirit to us. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the spirit they have isn't the spirit of the world, but rather it's from God himself. And I hope you see the flow here. The spirit knows God's wisdom because he is God himself. And he is able to reveal God's wisdom to us because we have received him. God has given him to us, me and you. You realize what this is saying? This is saying that us today, the Holy Spirit resides and lives within us. He is here. I know that God is here today. Sometimes we forget that, but he is here today. You know how I know that? Because he's, he's here. He, he's living inside me. He's living in all of you who have received him as your Savior. The New Testament goes over this over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? 2 Timothy 1, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Apostle John, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. The Father gave us the Spirit, and he gave us the Spirit so that we may know all the things that God has done for us. Isn't it amazing to know that the God of the universe resides in me and you? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have the Spirit. Now I want to finish 
by asking one question. And that is, what does this mean for us today? What's the big deal here? Sometimes we can go through these messages, and that's great, wonderful truth. And we walk out, and we say, feel really good. I'll be back and meet you next week. And we don't realize that the word was given not for our information, but it was given for our transformation. That these truths are not just good knowledge. They are things that are supposed to transform our lives. And there are a lot of things that we could pull out and apply today. But I just want to give you one thing. And that is, we have to cultivate our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We have him living in us. We need to cultivate our relationship with him. It's clear from our passage today that we are completely relying on him for everything. Absolutely everything. We can't believe without him. We can't know God without him. We can't understand God's word without him. We can't live the Christian life without him. We're relying on him for absolutely everything. Therefore, we need to work at developing our relationship with him. And how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we develop a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, who lives within us? How do we go about this? Well, I think Jesus gives, a li- gives us a little hint in Luke chapter 11 when he says this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What Jesus is saying here is that you humans, okay, you're evil, you're sinful, but you know how to give good gifts to your children. I actually think now that I have children, he should say grandparents in here, not, not, um, not parents, okay? Um, because grandparents really like to give gifts to their uh, kids. And once the grandkids come along, the kids get nothing. So it's really going to be grand, grandparents here. Well, my mom's coming third service. I'm only going to use that this time. But... Um, <laughs> Here's the point. If you as humans and you're evil know how to give good gifts to your children, don't you think your Father in heaven will give gifts, great gifts, wonderful gifts to those who ask him? And the gift that he's talking about here isn't material things, but it is the Holy Spirit. He's saying that we, if we ask the Father for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, he will give us the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Now, he's not saying that we will get him for the first time. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit will really be active and work in our lives. And I'm telling you here today, friends, that above everything else in your life, what you need is you need to be guided and led by the Holy Spirit. That's what you need more than any, any, anything else if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you need that, then what's the first step in in, in having that come to play in your life is simply to ask the Father for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Cultivating our relationship begins by simply asking the Father for the Holy Spirit to work. And once he begins to work in and through us, we have to submit to his guidance and to his leading. As Paul tells the believers at Galatia, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in the weeks ahead in our study in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul addressing all kinds of problems at the church at Corinth. As we've already talked about, this church was a complete and utter mess. They had issues with disunity, impurity, marriage, idolatry, spiritual gifts. If there was a problem that that could be had, the church had it. What does this mean for us? These are all issues that we are susceptible to as well. All things that can come to roost here at Bethel. 
And therefore, we have to understand that the root of all of their problems was the fact that they were searching after the wisdom of the world. They were much too infatuated with it. Rather than being in the world but not of the world, they were in the world and they were of the world. They were acting and living like the world. They were enamored and mesmerized by the world's wisdom, by the world's way of doing things, by the world's values. And so they became focused on the wrong things. They lost sight of the cross and it caused all sorts of problems. And the same thing can happen to us. We're not above it. We live in a very Corinthian culture. Did you realize that? This letter could be written to us and the culture that we live in. And friends, brothers and sisters, if we try to do this on our own, and we don't keep our eyes focused on the cross, and we don't seek the Spirit's guidance, and we don't live in Him and through Him and cultivate our relationship with Him, we will end up in our own mess, much like the Corinthians. A complete and utter mess, a terrible testimony in a culture that desperately needs the gospel. Which is why we're here, right? Why are we here? What do we exist for? We exist to know God and to make him known. We exist to bring glory to Jesus Christ and to present the gospel in such a way that it is attractive to unbelievers so that they will come and give glory to him as well. He is the Lord of glory. We are called to attract people to the Lord of glory by the way we live out our own future glory. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're here for. That's why we do all that we do. Baptisms this morning, worshiping, preaching, kinship groups, food drives, Bible translations. I'm going to leave you today with Galatians chapter 5, which says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And get this, if we live by the Spirit, that's all of us who have the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you today.